podcast with Dan and Scott. Hottest golf podcast, whether you like it or not. Fresh from back in the day when that's a put at the park. 7 a.m. PM special where they played after dark. From the birds to the focus to the losses and the win. Welcome podcast, patron to the show, lead the pen. Get busy golfing or get busy dying. Hottest golf podcast and the swing ain't lying. Welcome back, podcast patrons. Another episode of Leave the Pin Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Dan. Got my buddy, Scott. Big shout out to Tiger Hoods for wrapping us in. And Scott, this is the restart of the first time we've ever lost an episode. This is like um, like tournaments where they start. Maybe they get like a couple groups off, but then the weather's just so bad they have to bag it for the day. And they just tell the groups that they that started like, hey, listen, those first two holes that you had, yeah, we're sorry. We're just going to start over completely. So if you had like, you know, two eagles in those first two holes, eh, sorry, go out and recreate it tomorrow. Yeah, that that happened a few years ago there in San Francisco for something during a fog delay. I remember and like four groups went off on one and ten. And then they were just like, all right, look, we're nixing it. You know, you guys are hitting drives. We don't even know where they're landing. We can't even see wedges hit the green. So Whatever. Um, so listen, as you listen to this episode, you're going to notice uh, for the first time ever, we're, we're editing it. And it's not an edit, really. I'm just trying to splice in wherever we finish talking in this first half with the second half that we recorded last night. So you should have had an episode this morning on Wednesday, but uh, you'll get one Wednesday night into Thursday morning. So uh, we're just we're just trying our best. That's it. You know, and the, the snow and ice is precluding us from uh, being out there and playing, so we might as well talk about it, right? Exactly. All right, so let's get right into Pebble, Scott. I mean, we're, we're kind of on to Riv. I mean, that starts tomorrow already, but we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the resurgence of Jordan Spieth the last two weeks after we gave him the podcast bump and bought stock in him. Uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Daniel Berger and his amazing eagle to win the tournament. We're going to have to finish up with Mav McNeely's two-stroke penalty, which cost him big time, cost him getting into a playoff spot. And then finally, my man, Nate Lashley, doing what we all do so well, four-putting when it matters most. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I do think of all that, even though, you know, Berger won, I, I still think the story of the tournament is Jordan Spieth. Um, you know, really, you know, now two weeks in a row staying in contention and not playing awful. So that I think becomes the story of the tournament. Um, the other thing I was thinking about yesterday, uh, when we were talking about it is I I think maybe it was two years ago or last year, even we, we actually talked about Berger losing his tour card. You know, we did. And one of the things that we talk about with Daniel Berger is out kicking his coverage when it comes to marriage and how beautiful his wife is and literally how ugly this man is. Um, but tour wins will do that for you. And Scott, here's a fact that I found, which we didn't even talk about last night when we started recording. Daniel Berger is one of four people that has won twice since the tour started back up again after COVID. Uh, that's true. He uh, didn't he win the first tournament when they were back. Yeah, I mean that puts him in company like John Rom, DJ. I mean it's you know it's it's he's I mean literally he's playing like a top ten player in the world as of the last six months. Uh, right now he is number ten in the FedEx Cup. So, well, the PGA Tour would have you believe that that's all that matters. I mean he he passed Stuart Sink. So, I'm just saying that's that's yeah. pretty good. 
Um, so, I mean, look, everybody, you know, this is not the outcome everybody wanted, right? Everyone wanted Jordan Spieth after the Saturday lead to come in and kind of put the pedal down to the metal and take over. And he didn't play awful. I mean, he shot a 70 when the scoring average was like 70.6. He was, you know, under par, but Daniel Berger went out and shot 65. Like this dude, look, a lot of times guys give away tournaments, right? So Jordan Spieth didn't give this tournament away, Scott. Daniel Berger flat out won it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, going into the, you know, Sunday with a two-stroke lead, you know, that's all well and good. But when someone goes out and shoots 65 on Sunday, you know, you really have to, you have to be, you know, equally low in order to to counteract that. And, you know, there's only so much Spieth could have done. I mean, he ended up losing by three. So he would have had to shoot 67, which to, to get into a playoff of 66 to win outright. I mean, that's, that's crazy low. Um, it, you know, the wind conditions weren't the best to shoot low scores, but Berger managed to make it happen with, you know, some, some great shots, especially on 18. So, you know, good on him. That that's pretty much it. I mean, can't really say enough about the, the way Berger played. No. And, and the shot of the tournament, I mean, Big time players make big time plays, right? And and when you are in that zone, everything else around you ceases to exist, and and you're the only thing that kind of exists in a vacuum. And and you know, I I kind of feel like maybe Daniel Berger, a guy that hasn't won that often, maybe was helped by the fact that there weren't a ton of fans around with that much pressure, because the three wood that he ripped to the front of that green, and look, the 18th green at Pebble. There's water and a rock wall to the left. There's the front bunker that pinches into the front of that green. So you literally have about 25 feet to land the ball to get on that green if you don't fly it. And let's be honest, no one's landing a super soft three wood on the size of that green on 18. So the shot he hit was like through a pinhole. It was absolutely textbook. And then not only that, he sinks the 20-footer for Eagle, Scott. Like, that was just... 31-footer. 30, give him 31? some more credit. Jeez. All right, give the man credit where credit is due. You know, guys behind him on the course were probably still thinking, like, hey, I can get in. I can get in the playoff. Um, but if you're sitting in the middle of the 18th fairway and you see this dude drop that dagger, I mean, you're you're done. There's no way around it. I think Spieth even said that. Like, you know, going... He didn't know that Berger had, you know, had made Eagle... Uh, obviously, when he he teed off on 18, and I think, uh, you know, I guess part of him is figuring like, oh well, you know, if, if I make eagle here and Berger bogeys it, you know, maybe we can get into a playoff. You know, who who knows? Who knows what he's thinking? Yeah, um, I mean, those look that that always goes through, you know, goes through people's minds, and that's kind of why you need a good caddy there, right? To you know, you need Greller to say, hey, dude, like he missed that eagle putt, like we need to go for this in two, or. You know, he finishes tie three. Grella's probably like, all right, you know, look, here's the deal. I mean, we're not going to reach it. We don't want to drop out of the top five. The money, the FedEx Cup points, the world ranking points. You know what I mean? Let's lay up, hit a wedge, make birdie, and go home. We're not going to win this thing. Right, exactly. Um, and I, I think Speed did, you know, he not that he was, you know, necessarily going for the hole, but he was going for the green from his second shot there. So, 
you know, he, he, I think still thought he had a, a chance to, to make some noise, but yeah, obviously I, it wasn't to be right. And you know, the thing is too, there's, there's a lot of guys that, that don't look at leaderboards, which like, you know, to me is crazy. I mean, I, I, I just feel like the more information that you have, the better off you'd be, you know, why wouldn't you want to know where you stand? Because quite honestly, it, it does impact how you play. And there's so many people that will say, well, you need to just your game plan, stick to it. Don't change it no matter what. But I mean, come on, let's be honest. There's sometimes if, if you and another guy are clear of the field, well, guess what? Then it becomes match play. You know what I mean? And you, and you do the opposite of what that guy does, or you tailor your game to what that guy does. Um, so I, I don't ever understand the people that don't look at leaderboards. I don't get that. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the match play, you know, specifically for match play. Like, yeah, it's one thing, like, you know, if you're playing a, a hole and you're like, I always, always hit driver off this tee, the guy tees off before you and he's in the woods, you know, well, maybe I don't need to hit driver. You know, maybe I can go down a club or maybe I can hit an iron off this tee and make sure I'm in the fairway and not have to worry about, you know, hitting the ball in the woods myself or exactly. putting myself in a bad position. So, exactly. So, uh, you know, that's that's the way it goes. So, you know, just play smart. Hey, uh, Nate Lashley had a top five. Probably would have had a top two if he didn't four mm. putt on the 16th hole. Uh, what do you think goes through a dude's mind like that when that happens, Scott? Uh, I mean, he was clearly furious with himself. Um, I mean, you, you could see he was not happy walking off the green, obviously slamming his putter down. Um, and then he was just completely out of sorts, you know, from, from that point on pretty much, um, which it's unusual because he had seemed pretty unflappable up till that point. Um, and it, again, it's, it's tough to watch and it's gotta be really hard knowing like, oh, great. Like I literally just, you know, you know, burned a chance to get, you know, a win or, you know, a ton of money. And, you know, Nate Lashley is not Jordan Spieth. You know, Jordan Spieth is financially secure right now. You know, not that Nate Lashley probably isn't, but, you know, he's not, he's not a, he's not a big name. You know, a win changes his life. So I, I get it. So he finished four behind. Okay. He, he wasn't going to win. But you never know what maybe sinking that birdie putt, what pressure then that puts on Berger. I mean, he had he, the man had a you know the, Scott the What's guy up? the guy four putted from twelve feet. I I know it's it's miserable. It, it was terrible to watch because every one of us you know, as golfers has been in that position and every one of us is unfortunately, you know, spit the bit as they say. Um, so it, it was, it was hard to watch. It's hard to watch someone who nine times out of 10 makes that putt probably. You know, sometimes you, you have that brain fart, you have that brain freeze, you kind of go off of autopilot. One of the things that was kind of impressive to me is he came back and made par on a very tough 17th hole. Everyone knows how difficult that that approach shot is, the mm -hmm. tee shot. Uh, and then he birdied 18. Yep. I mean, he could have finished at six under par on the day. He could have shot 66. 
you know, if he made that that par putt before. Coulda, woulda, shoulda, obviously. Exactly. Things may, have, things may have played out different, but, you know, it is what it is. And then, you know, we got to talk, Scott, about, about Mav McNeely and his two-stroke penalty. And, you know, we talked about this when we were recording last night, and it got cut. But this is one of those penalties that just kind of infuriates me as a golf fan and as a golfer. You know, I see something like what Patrick Reed does in the past and, and feel, you know, he was justly penalized and then should have been last week or two weeks ago now, if you will. Um, but I see what, what Mav McNeely does, grounding his club behind the ball, not even attempting to hit the ball, not even that close to the ball, obviously. It's not like he was putting the club right down behind the ball to improve the lie. He pushed the grass down and the ball moves. That did not occur. He puts the club down about four or five inches behind the ball to kind of get himself set, and then the ball wobbles. So he calls the rules official in, and they assess him a two-stroke penalty. We talked about having different sets of rules for amateurs and pros. Um, I, I'm not in one camp or the other, but where I sit on the fence is that we need to just make some of these rules more common sense oriented. Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's one thing to accidentally do something, you know, take note of it, you know, call a rules official and say, you know, the ball moved a little bit. I'm going to put it back where it was, et cetera. Or do I need to put it back where it was? Uh, and then, you know, continue to play. And, you know, common sense would indicate, you know, since there was no intent to move the ball there and, and you, you know, you, called you know you called the rules official over and you just kind of keep going and playing from there common sense would indicate like that's it you just you know keep going like there's no no penalty on that but i guess for whatever reason the pga tour likes to make things overly complicated i feel like that i don't want to say penalty but that rule should be if you didn't make an attempt at it like okay take it take for example zach johnson at the masters right mm -hmm. he's sitting up on 13 everyone remembers it he's taking his practice swing he accidentally hits the ball he's like what the hell just happened he gets a free retee no penalty i mean mav mcneely basically did the same thing he didn't make an attempt to hit the ball he wasn't trying to improve the lie so in my eyes how how are they different i mean i, I don't understand how they're different honestly I mean, I guess you can make the argument that one's on a tee and one's not, so you can't recreate the exact same condition. Well, I get that, but if you're let look, there's some guys that don't use tees on a par three, right? And you could be taking your practice swing on a par three and accidentally hit it and not have any intention of hitting it, and you get to, you know, put that back and, and recreate. Um, you know, I I don't know. It's it's you could go over the rules of golf with a fine-tooth comb and come up with some ridiculous ones. Uh, some have been changed in the past, thankfully. We remember the the uh, ball marker rule that kind of screwed Lexi out of a major. DJ, uh, Ian Poulter succumbed to it as well. Hmm. That, was, that was taken into consideration, and people had cooler heads, and they prevailed, and they said, hey, this is, <laughs> this is really stupid. Like, if you drop your ball marker and it moves the ball, like, you're not even... You're not even trying to hit it with the club. Like, yeah, you could you, you could not have the putter in your hand and <laughs> still get assessed a penalty in that situation. Right. And, and you know, I guess the thing is, you want to take out 
the human element, right? So if it becomes a debate and you have two other playing partners and the rules official, now you have four people involved saying, well, I think it should be here, or I think it should be there, or I think it should be there, or whatnot. But, you know, and I understand that aspect, but but still, I mean, this this cost Mav McNeely a chance at a playoff, right? He finishes 16 under, two behind Daniel Berger, two, assess a two-stroke penalty right there. There's your tournament. Yep, and, and you know, again, opportunity for a, a, a breakout win for a young kid. You know, that's that's tough. It's a tough pill to swallow. Now, most people are going to hear us talk now. Scott, I want to talk about the rangefinder debate with the PGA. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you hear us get done with this, you're going to hear us splice into the end of Mav McNeely. We were trying to find out where his dad worked for it was Sun Microsoft Systems, and that was bought out by who is it bought out by Scott Dell or something like that? Cisco, I think. Cisco, yeah, and you know he lived on or, like the 16th hole or, or Pebble. Yeah. And the, $20 million house, dad's worth like $2 billion or whatever. So that's why, that's when the episode kind of, you know, cracked up and, and split and stuff. Um, yeah, Ma- Mavic Neely's dad's a billionaire, basically, is the, the point that we're trying to make there. Right. Um, he's so he's doing, doing okay. <laughs> but in terms of, you know, in terms of golf and his golfing career and his golfing acumen, I mean, what, what would a win at Pebble do for him? I mean, it would, it would skyrocket this kid to the moon. Oh, totally, totally. Any win, anytime you win your first one, it's it's a huge, huge boon to your career. Yeah, yeah. All right. So and cut. Uh, next scene. So golf's governing body, Scott, uh, back in 2014, allowed the use of rangefinders. All right. However, they enacted a local rule, or or let tournaments enact a local rule that rangefinders could not be used. So that's why you don't see it on the PGA Tour. That's why you don't see it at the Open Championship, the U.S. Open, uh, the PGA, or the Masters. On any professional tours, anywhere, you don't see it. They tried it out on the Corn Ferry Tour in 2017, but for the most part, you don't see it. So the PGA of America last week kind of circumnavigated their own rule that they put in place and said that they're going to allow the device, the rangefinders, in three of their major championships, the PGA, the KPMG Women's PGA, and then the Kitchen Aid Senior PGA Championship. All of this because they hope to improve the flow of play. So I've got a few thoughts on this. Um, I've got a, you know, we've got some good friends that are caddies that this could severely impact. And I just want to get your thoughts kind of off the cuff on the PGA of America allowing these in their tournament? You know, part of me is like, that could be something that, you know, does separate pros from from your average, you know, golfer. Uh, And then part of me is like, you know, what's the big deal? I I don't know where I I stand on this, to be honest with you. Like I said, a big part of me is like they they shouldn't need it, but then a big part of me is like you know what you want to talk about speeding up play and making things a little bit more interesting. Like, why do I need to see you know Justin Rose you know pace off you know distance from a you know this tree to this rock to try to figure out whether or not he's got you know one forty five or one forty eight? Yeah, I'm. I mean, I I can't think of of a rebuttal. I mean, I think you're right. 
do I do I believe it's going to really improve the pace of play? No, I, I don't at all because the pin is literally the last piece of the equation that's calculated. And that's not me making this up. Like, this is from professional caddies that I know that I've been out on the course with that have showed me how they calculate numbers. And first off, the PGA of America is not going to allow slope, okay, or any of these range finders that take into uh, take into account elevation, barometric pressure, uh, wind, temperature, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's just going to be a number. So that number in and of itself is a range to begin with, right? That number on the fly might be 130, okay, like to the to the laser. But we're playing in Colorado. Okay, well, now that number's really 110. We're right. playing at Kiowa, and it's windy. Well, now that number's really 135. And these guys know the green so well, and their caddies know the green so well, that, again, the pin is the last piece of the equation. They're looking at front carry numbers, carry number over the trap, how far the back of the green is, um, you know, how many yards left or right the pin is, and then finally they get the number to the pin. And if you hear guys discuss it with their caddies, they're not, you know, they may say, okay, we got 135 to the flag. And they say, okay, cool. What do I got to cover? 127. What do I got at the back? 142. What's the wind doing? You know, five miles an hour left to right. Okay, so 135 is really 132. 127 front, so I need to go 129 and play three yards of release, right? That so that number that was 132 or 135 is really 129, right? Exactly. You can't you can't measure that with with the rangefinder. And and here's my other thing too. And and not to get too, uh, not to get like it's not really political, but to get too union on them. I feel you know the caddies tried unionizing a, a while back. Okay. Right. Um, and there was a big to do on tour that the tour wanted to squash it. Uh, and understandably so, right? The tour's in it to make money. And the caddies are independent contractors, just like the players for the most part. But here's my thing you got a guy that gets there on Monday, a caddy now, right? Does two or three practice rounds with his pro, then walks the course frontwards and backwards gets all the numbers, meets with the other caddies, does all of his homework, does all of his research, and let's just say puts in 30, 35 hours before the tournament starts on Thursday. Now, all of a sudden, some Tom, Dick, or Harry could come out with a rangefinder and just be like, uh, yep, 152, got it. Like, I, I, I truly think it's going to help the lesser caddies, the lazier ones, kind of have more of a come up because they're relying on that technology. Uh, that's certainly possible. I mean, it's, it's hard to argue with that. So, I mean, definitely, you know, a, a, anything that makes it easier, you know, to do the job, I guess, theoretically helps someone who's less adept at it than someone who, who isn't. Because now that's a, you know, that's a tool that, you know, maybe that that's a secondary tool now for the, the better caddies. So, right. Yep, there you go. Good you know, point. and and then my my last thing with it is, you know, a lot of these caddies are all speaking out against it. And I am great friends with with some caddies, but a part of me kind of like a behind the scenes thing is, you know, they're worried about job security, right? Like anybody. So Right. I I I think that they're probably going to be okay. 
Yeah, I, I think so, too. I, I truly don't believe that the tour is going to um, catch on with this as a whole. I don't think the optics are really that good with, you know, guys pulling it out and throwing out numbers and stuff. And then, honestly, I know they say it's going to increase the pace of play, but uh, part of me seriously thinks that it might slow it down because they might mark it off during the, you know, during the week at like 1.30, and then they, they laser it, and it's 131 because, look, those things do have a variance of error from one to three yards. And guess what? For you and I, that's okay. But for these guys, like, that's not okay, you know? Right. One to three yards might be the difference between $10,000 and $100,000 in a paycheck. So if I'm caddying for you, Scott, and we get a certain number on Tuesday, and we happen to get to that same spot on Friday again, and I get a different number with the rangefinder, well, now we've got to recalculate all of our other numbers as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And, yeah, I... Again, I, I think a lot of these caddies are going out when they walk the course. They're going out with rangefinders too. Um, you know, rangefinders, their like personal yardage books, like all that kind of stuff. Like the caddies that are doing their homework are really doing their homework and they're using everything they can. Right. Um ha- again, having it in in play, you know what? <sighs> yeah, it, you know, it could it could go either way. It could speed up play or it could be like you know, pass me that, pass me the finder. Okay. Well, what do you got? Well, I got this. Well, what about over here? Oh, pass me the finder. And then we could end up watching, you know, that finder getting passed back and forth for, you know, five minutes or so. Right. And then we, we almost, we lose the interaction between player and caddy. Like we lose what makes the player caddy relationship so great. I, I think though it, it could lead to some hilarious moments. You know, it could lead to, you know, me, me zapping it. And get to 128, and you're like, no way, dude, give me that. Like, it can't be 128, you know? And then you hit it, yeah. and it's like, ah, I told you it's 126. And I'm like, dude, what's the difference? Two yards, come on. Yeah, how, how long before Bubba, like, flings it at Ted Scott? Right, <laughs> yeah. And then flings Ted Scott on top of that. And, and honestly, do we want to be giving Bryson more technology? No, because that, that's the other thing, is Bryson's going to, you know, create his own, probably... You know, where he, he's like, well, you know, this here, it has a built-in compass. So, you know, I could utilize this to figure out that, you know, you know, trajectory of the moon, you know, and based on the gravitational pull, uh, you know, on, on the course at this point in time. <laughs> hey, what if this is all one big, like, tinfoil hat conspiracy theory to sell more rangefinders in the pro shops of PGA professionals? And that's hey. why the PGA of America is allowing it. And Bushnell is a big sponsor. I, you know, speaking of conspiracy theories, you know, I, just going back to uh, Daniel Berger at, at Pebble, you know, I, from what I've learned about conspiracy theories is, you know, everything that conspiracy theorists, you know, see, you know, they may take as a sign. And, sure. And, and, you know, Daniel Berger, you know, that, that, you know, last putt he had to win the tournament, he left the pin. So I'm not saying that he's definitely listening to our, our podcast, but I can't say that he's not. So I'm going to I'm gonna consider that until I'm told otherwise, you know, a, a subtle nod to us. Love it. A wink and a nod, and he's off with a million-dollar check. Exactly. Terrific. You're welcome, Daniel. 
You are welcome. Some technical glitches because of the weather in the Northeast here. I think the last thing I was saying is how Mav McNeely's parents used to have a house off of Pebble Beach, and that was one of the funniest things that they mentioned. Like, you're not talking about your rinky-dink country club. Like, I think, that you know, every once in a while I'll go on Zillow and look at houses like in the Monterey Peninsula, and literally I think the lowest-priced house on the golf course is something like 18 and a half or 22 mil or something like that. Um, yeah, so it's it's tough growing up, like, essentially on one of the greatest golf courses in the world. Right, right. Um, so he, like you said, Scott, he's he's doing okay, you know? Um, but that penalty really did come back to haunt him. You know, it's not like, you know, again, it's not like a guy's finishing 56th or something like that. Like, this literally kept him out of a playoff this this kept him from a win, and and I would argue that this was a less innocuous violation of the rules than what Patrick Reed did a few weeks ago. Uh, I would definitely make that argument, right? But but if you're a tour star, and it, you know if you have a green jacket, and and the tour looks highly upon you, and and again, I have no idea why they do so with him because of every past violation that he's incurred. It, it it makes no sense to me whatsoever. You think the wrath of the tour would come down on this man every single time, but it doesn't. I mean, he's like the Teflon Don. He goes through unscathed. But a guy like McNeely, you know, it really does hurt. Now, I hope that McNeely's on a little bit of roll and he kind of keeps it going and, and, you know, maybe maybe picks up a win or another top two, top three or so in, in the next few weeks. Kind of like what Spieth is doing right now. You know, Spieth's swing looks great, Scott. His full swing looks incredible. The short game is is like 80% there, and the putting's like 50% there. Yes. A- absolutely. I um I was I was I screenshotted some of, of Spieth's motions um uh, because I'm showing my oldest son Lyden. He's working um with Nick Biondi, who's a tour pro up up in uh, Scranton, up north from us. He's working with him a bit on his swing and so there's there's a certain move off of takeaway that that nick wants you know lie to kind of get into because he's using too much wrist and even though he hits the ball a ton and, and he's doing pretty well it's it's you know in golf it's consistency and spieth was so consistent if you watch his swing now the upper body motion is is just so limited. I mean, the arms come back and then nothing moves until the shoulders, shoulders, excuse me, initiate that movement. He's coming through so on plane, but there's something awry still in that putting stroke. And and I don't think it's mechanical. I think it's mental. I, I think with him, it pretty much has to be mental. And I think uh, in all honesty, the last two weeks, uh, I'm not entirely surprised that he, he lost uh, he lost it on Sunday a little bit because you have to think about it. I mean, he, what is he? He's not won since 2017. Correct. All the, all the talk has been, you know, uh, when Spieth's going to come back, what Spieth, you know, you know, what, you know, will Spieth ever win again? And then he puts himself in a position like he has to be going to sleep on God. I hope I don't screw up tomorrow. I hope I don't screw up tomorrow. Like that thought has to be in the back of his head. You know, as he gets to the course, as he's warming up, every putt he stands over, every shot he stands over, like that thought just has to be in the back of his head. And at some point, he'll get over it. But, you know, now that he's playing a little bit better and, he, and he's going to put himself in that position, you know, you have to think it's going to, at some point, 
you know, he's going to be standing over that putt and like those thoughts aren't going to be there. And that's when, you know, you're going to start to see him not put himself into contention, but, you know, now put himself in position where other people are going to be chasing him down and he's not going to be, you know, losing leads early in rounds and things like that. I, I, I agree a hundred percent. Um, I feel like mechanically he's there, but mentally he's not ready to win yet. Once he gets back, and let's you know, let let's say something happens like at the John Deere where he holds out for a win, right? That then becomes a catalyst for him, the spark plug. Like you know what, I can do it. And he just needs to get back into you know, kind of that killer mindset of like, look, I'm I'm gonna go out there and destroy, and no one's gonna beat me. One of the things that that really surprised me was how much longer off the tee he is now. Um, there were four or five times yesterday that he was three fifteen, three eighteen off the tee. So you know, again, it's it's not mechanical, but when you get on the greens, as you know, putting is an, to me putting is an art form, right? You can you can quantify and roboticize every other aspect of the game. But when you take into account line and speed, and that you know that becomes an art form because there's a lot of different ways to putt, Scott. If you if if I have a six foot putt with a foot of break, I might play it super high up and let it die at the hole. You might take all the break out and jam it in, right? I mean that's that's the different way that you can get around the greens and get things done. So artistically, you know, artistically, I think he's like a six handicap still. Uh, mechanically. Gosh, he looks he looks like a winner. Uh, definitely. And you know what? I, I really do think, uh, you know, a lot of it's mental. I, I think the the physical, you know, sort of whatever it was, I think he probably has that cleared up. And I think it's probably like a month ago that he talked to Butch Harmon. Like, I, I almost wonder, like, how much contact there is between the two of them. And if that's part of you know, what they talk about is the the mental game. So uh, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, a guy like Harmon can't hurt. You know what I mean? When you have, you know, let's, let's be honest, maybe the greatest coach for tour pros in the world. When you have a guy like that telling you, Hey man, you know, you're looking really good. Like I, I think everything you're doing is, is terrific. I mean, that boosts your confidence. You know, you got two, podcasters like us got giving him a boost too and you know you see what happens um hey you're a new york guy did you see the headline of the new york post about spieth i did not says jordan spieth chokes at pebble beach uh i don't really think that's what happened but okay shot a two under 70 the field scoring average that day was a 70.6 he would have had to shot a 66 in order to win the event outright. I don't think he had a 66 in him. Uh, Daniel Berger shot 65. I mean, it's not like... Daniel Berger went out and won it, Scott. No one gave it to him. No one choked this away. The dude dude was on in two on 18 and then dropped like a 25-foot eagle putt. That guy won the tournament. Yeah, I I, I have to say, I mean, I, I really don't... I can't imagine... There was much Spieth could have done to to change the outcome of that, short of, like you said, shooting 66. Right. And look, sometimes you play great, 
And sometimes you play great all week, and then someone just comes from behind and goes seven, eight under. I mean, that's that's golf. I mean, there's no way around it. Um, I wanted to ask you one question, Scott. We we're talking about buying and selling stock and players last few weeks. Some of the players that we bought stock in ricocheted up through the market. We had Jordan Spieth, we had Brooks Kepka. Um, but something that you had mentioned buying stock in is is quickly losing value, and that's Ricky Fowler, Scott. He missed another cut that's 10 cuts he's missed in his last 22 events again we want to buy low and, and sell high now's the time you're gonna buy you know buy stock in ricky fowler because you know it'll happen it's gonna come he'll come back yeah it's just uh you know he's a guy that perpetually was always there on the weekends, you know, especially it's like especially this time of year. Think of think of the last four or five years. Tory Pines, the waste management, Pebble. He's always there, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he's on a downward spiral right now. Jordan Spieth's going up, and Ricky Fowler's going down, down, down. Yeah, well, you're so you're your people who you were you know gonna pump their stock up. You had Kepka and you had Spieth. Well, so far. You, you're you're making a killing. Yeah, I'm cashing in right now. I'm selling Kepka. He's up to 12 in the world, and Spieth's up to 62. I'm done. I'm getting out now. I uh, I wouldn't get out on on Spieth. I I'd hold on to that one. I've already sold it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, you know, you know who I'm buying more stock in. Did you tell? D- DJ. Another uh, D- win. Another win. DJ picks up another win. Out in uh, what was it? Uh, where did he win? Was it Abu Dhabi? Yeah, Abu Dhabi. He was at. Yep, yep. You know, I I, I wish we could have him on right now because I, I do have a question for him. Uh, Wee! Hey, Scott, oh. what's going on, man? Ah, perfect, perfect. Ah, DJ, what's going on? Nothing is is. Excuse me if it gets choppy. I'm riding a camel. Of course you are. Of course you are. I I I. It's perfect because I was just telling Dan that uh, I had a couple questions for you, right, Dan? Uh, my name's Dustin. I guess Dan's out again. All right, well, a couple questions for you. First of all, you know, obviously, congratulations on the win. Uh, did you, you know, congratulations on the camel? Um, I I did not win the camel, Scott. Oh, okay. I was I wondering read- if that was something that was awarded to you for for winning last week. Listen, man, I rented it last Saturday. Uh, okay. And and I'm still riding it. Sweet, sweet. So I I had a question for you. I I saw uh, that you hit a fan with a, a you know one of your drives. Well, I... he wasn't really a fan of mine after that. Fair enough. Um, is that the the first time you've hit? You know, someone in the, the gallery? Definitely not. You know, Scott, back in like 2000, I don't know, 11 or 12, something like that, um, I wish at the Open Championship, when I hit one out of bounds, that there would have been a gallery member there. Gotcha, gotcha. So I know like a lot of times when, when pros hit, uh, you know, a fan, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll they'll take something out of their bag. So do you like have a stash of things in your bag that you give to fans if you hit them? Yeah, that's where I keep my stash, Scott. 
So, like, what what kind of things do you have stashed away? My stash. Like uh, some, like, signed gloves or maybe, like, a hat, something like that? No, Scott, I keep my weed in there. Well, I guess that's good, too, for the fan, because, you know, they can use it to maybe relieve some of that pain, you know, some, like, you you don't mean weed, you mean, like, CBD or, or something like that, right? DJ's weed. It relieves your pain. Okay. Um, hey, so, Scott. Yeah, go ahead. You know that camels sleep standing up? It protects them from predators. Fascinating. Uh, you know, we're we're really into uh, you know watching you know shows about animals in our house right now. So I do have another question for you, DJ. Um, what about uh, you know withdrawing from Pebble Beach after the win? Um, I was just curious. You know what what went through your mind as you decided to withdraw? Scott, listen to me. You know me well enough now, coming on this podcast, that nothing goes through my mind. That's <laughs> fair enough. Let me tell you why I couldn't be in Monterey. I'm on a camel, Scott. I got lost in the desert. Everything looks the same. They told me to go out past the sand dune and make a left. Next thing I know, I was on top of a pyramid, dog. Do you need us to send help, DJ? If I could give you my GPS locations, I would. Listen, Scott, you know what else I learned? Uh, go ahead. Camels have three sets of eyelids, Scott. Interesting. Is that to, like, protect them from, like, sand or? Yes. Maybe? Okay. How did you know that? Have you ridden a camel? Uh, I, strangely enough, I have. <laughs> Scott, you, you're crazy, dog. Uh, that that's how we roll here in New York. The Bronx Zoo, they got camel rides. I mean, that's cr- you think uh you think maybe maybe I could come to the Bronx Zoo one day? Sure can. Maybe next time, you know, we got the uh next time we have a major championship here in the New York area, head on over and uh we'll meet up and we'll go on some camel rides and you know, we'll have a good time. You know who looks like a camel, Scott? Uh, n- no. Bryson DeChambeau, and he was in New York winning a major, but he looks like a camel. Hmm. He does. He does. Uh, well, DJ, I, this is, as always, very, very illuminating. Um, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Um, anything else you want to tell the fans? I mean, I love y'all. I really hope. 